if you have dreams, like there are things that you're frustrated about, there's problems that you want to solve in the world, there's things that you go, you know what, I would love to change that. But you haven't got time because you're so busy paying bills, you're so busy stuck in the rat race, or you haven't got resources to be able to do it. Well, once you come into money, it enables you to do those things. So for me, I got rid of all my negative associations with money because all of them serve to become psychological barriers, which then promote procrastination and create doubt and lead to what I call conflicted thinking. And because of conflicted thinking, we don't take the decisive action that we need to take in order to accumulate wealth. And so that's why you've got to get rid of all negative associations with money if you want it. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on because school is now in session. All right, welcome to another episode of Growth Mindset University. My guest today is Ron Malhotra. Ron is an award-winning financial advisor, business and thought leadership consultant, author of a book called The Eight Wealth Habits of Financially Successful People. He's a radio host. He's an international public speaker, and he's the creator of the Successful Mail magazine. Ron's been featured in Australian Finance Review, Money Magazine, Smart Investor, Entrepreneur, ABC, The Huffington Post, and more. Ron Malhotra, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So why did you even get started in finance? Um, look, I I, um, I was born in India, and so India is a poor country. And uh, what I saw was that uh, there was widespread poverty. And my both my parents were well educated, uh, but uh, despite their education, I kind of saw them struggling with money. And I, it started to occur to me that uh, so this was when I was about twenty. I'm forty one today. I was about twenty years of age. I'd gone out, you know, drinking with my friends. And we were having breakfast early in the morning, and I, there was a newspaper sitting um, on the, uh, the, the 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 table, and the and the headline was that one percent of the world population controls, I think it was sixty or seventy percent of the world's wealth. And so I remember I was really tired, and I looked at it, and then I thought it it didn't it didn't strike me with the first time I looked at it, but then I looked at it again, and I'm thinking, what? You're kidding me? And when I started to read the article it started to become really evident to me that there was this massive disparity of wealth, not just in developing countries, but worldwide. And then as I started to look further into the research, um, I started to find out that there was only 2% of people in the world that had a net worth of 1 million US dollars, and only 1% of entrepreneurs ever got to a million dollars plus. And, it, and I thought to myself, wow, this is unbelievable, the level of disparity in the world is unbelievable. And so that got me really curious. And I thought, you know what, it's really obvious that most people don't understand money. 
And I came from a background where my parents didn't understand money. And so I thought, you know what, I've got to figure this thing out. And so that's why I, I thought, you know, um, you know, how do I figure this thing out? And I started to ask around and people said there's a, this thing called a financial advisor and basically your whole job is around understanding money. And so that's what got me started on this journey. Mm-hmm. Ryan, as you begin to talk, I'm reminded of why I reached out to you. My friend, well, well when at beginning, my friend Mark Metry described you as a meditation teacher that just really wants you to win. And I was like, okay, Mark, let's see. Let's see. And, I, and as I begin to listen to you on his podcast, I'm like, oh yeah, I need that guy. Ron, that's a, that's a great story. But would you say, I don't think everyone can be rich, right? Like wouldn't that, I don't, I don't think that's possible. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the trillions of dollars are produced in the world economy um, you know, every year, and the fact remains that uh, the wealth is concentrated in very few hands. Uh, but let's not even talk about rich, because the definition of rich kicks in at mm. 500 million. So we're not even talking about rich. Right now, we're just talking about a, an individual's ability to create sufficient assets to last them an entire lifetime, okay? So we're not even talking about having a fleet of Ferraris and mansions. We're just saying because right now they estimate that about 80% of the world population within their lifetime are going to fall back on some kind of government support or family support to sustain their retirement, 80% of the world. About 15% of people in the world will have sufficient wealth to last them an entire lifetime, and about 5% of the world population will have enough wealth for intergenerational wealth planning. So that kind of tells you that we are right now we shouldn't even be talking about denying money because we are so far away from being rich that it's absurd to ever uh, say you know what money is not important or money is not everything because the people who are saying that have absolutely no idea how far they are from being able to just sustain themselves and have a dignified existence in their own retirement and so one of the things i'm starting to find in mainstream conversations today and this is a consequence of uh, capitalist greed and all the corporate scandals and financial scandals that we witnessed. What's actually happening is there's a whole generation now that is too busy denying money. And so what's happened is we had in the 80s, we had money's greed is good and everybody was really money orientated. But now what's happened is we've, we've now gone to the other extreme where because of this abundance and spirituality movement, a lot of people are misunderstanding what money is. And they almost at a subconscious level believe money to be the cause of greed and exploitation. And in order to be good human beings, they're busy talking about purpose and passion. And I talk about those things as well. But the issue is that these, a lot of these people are talking about passion and purpose in a way that denies money and makes money to be a bad thing. Now, so let's, let's, not, you know, let's not fool ourselves. We're not talking about people becoming rich. Yes, you're, you're probably right. It's, most people are not going to be able to make that level of wealth where they can classify themselves as rich. But we are simply talking about having enough money to last you an entire lifetime. And I'll tell you why that's become important. Very simple, longevity trends. Once Agreed. upon a time, prior to 1950, you know, I don't know about the United States, but in Australia, which is also one of the wealthiest and most developed countries in the world, only 7% of the Australian population lived past, past 55. This is prior to 1950. Today, across the world, a lot of people are living well into their 90s. Now, that's a third of your, your lifetime 
in retirement without an income. So if you haven't made provisions for creating assets and wealth whilst you're working and whilst you're young, you're pretty much screwed. There's no other way to say it. And that's what people are not realizing because I've been having these conversations now for money conversations for about 17 years. And when you have thousands of money conversations, you start to identify predictable patterns in people's thinking and you start to see where they're going to end up. And you try and help them, but people have this – everyone's ashamed now to admit that they want money. Back in the day, everyone used to talk about it, and we used to celebrate that. Today, a lot of people are ashamed because they see that as greed, and they see that as arrogance and exploitation. And so I think we've gone from one extreme to another. The balance is really in the middle. Like We always talk about how do you integrate the spiritual life with having all the great experiences in the physical world? And for me, that's why maybe Mark Mitry said that, you know, I'm the meditation guy that wants the best for people because I do. Because I go, why are you denying the physical experience? I mean, yes, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience, but let's not deny the physical experience. You actually need money to survive. And if you're in the Western world, I don't know what it is in America, but in Australia to be have a comfortable standard of living, a couple need about $60,000 per annum. And so if you're going to be in your retirement for 30 years, where is that money going to come from? Sixty. $60,000 times 30 years, where, where are people going to get this money from? Um, and what's interesting is that as of today, there's only, according to a, a report that's produced by Deloitte, which is called uh, the Global Shift in Wealth, as of now, uh, there's only 15,500,000 individuals approximately across the world that have a net worth of $1 million US dollars outside their family home. But as a percentage, that represents just over 2% of the world population. So 98% of people in the world are not even going to get a million dollars. Yet, there are so many people out there denying the importance of money. So that, to me, just becomes an absolutely ludicrous argument. Well, then what I, I agree it is hard for people to talk about money. That was actually one of my uh, questions and talking points for today. It is necessary to talk about money, but what is a healthy way to a non-show-offy way, or uh, if you will, to bring up the conversation of money, Ron? Well, I think one of the things we need to realize is that money is just an enabler. Um, so I see money as an energy, I see money as an enabler, and I see money as a magnifier. So what do I mean by that? Well, money is an energy. It will always flow from people that value it the least to people that value it the most. I mean, there's no doubt mm. about the fact that if you don't value money, you are not going to acquire it. Because if you did acquire it, it would make you a bad person. And pretty much your whole entire mental makeup is designed to keep you surviving. And it doesn't want you to do anything that is in conflict with your values. So if you don't highly value money, you're not going to acquire it. That's the first thing, because you've already got a psychological barrier that's going to prevent you from coming into the accumulation of money. Now, the, the reason why people have this barrier is because they do not, they see, they have these what I call subconscious negative associations with money. So rather than seeing money as means for a lifestyle, means to have more options in life, and means for contribution, they see money as greed, exploitation, and arrogance, and showing off. They, they're the first associations that they already have in their mind, right? Even the fact that you know, when you, if you look at your, the way you pitched the question to me, why did you pitch that question that way? Because it's possible that predominantly your association with money is not that 
uh, not a positive association, that predominantly mm. you see money as a tool that a lot of people use to show off. Now, the issue ah, is... Ha, ha, ha. Right? That's so, a great point, Ron. <laughs> maybe maybe that's indicative of myself. Crap. Right. But, <laughs> I, but I dug fault. my own grave there. But, but you didn't do... You see, you didn't... But it's not your fault because if you have grown up in a culture, uh, if you've grown up around people who also have negative beliefs around money, then they would have passed that on to you. And, you know, it's almost like people attach this twisted honor to not having money. I've heard so many people on LinkedIn say, you know, well, at least I'm an honest person. I may not have money. At least I'm an honest person. What? What's that got to do with anything? Why the justification? I mean, why do you have to? So are you suggesting that, that, that it, all the people that have money are dishonest people? And that, so they attach this twisted honor to not having money, which right. means that all of their positive association is with not having money and all of their negative association is with acquiring money. So that psychological barrier comes because they haven't attached any meaning to have money. Money. So, for example, I have very healthy beliefs around money. I love money. Why? Because I see that money will allow me to live a holistically successful life. It will allow me to live by my primary values. It will allow me to um, develop myself. I have my one of my predominant values is learning and developing, and learning costs money. Uh, then I want to contribute. You know, I want to, for example, look after my parents. I want to make sure that my niece is educated well. So there are a number of things that I have in, in my list of reasons why I must acquire a lot of money. And they're all positive reasons. Yeah, there's some lifestyle reasons as well, like I enjoy driving a nice car. I like having Swiss watches. I'm going to do that as well. And why shouldn't I? At the end of the day, this world and with all of its physical experiences that humans have produced, I want to maximize those experiences, right? But, but the first 10 reasons typically, like if I said to you, Jordan, write down 50 reasons why you must have money. You might find that the first five or 10 are security-related or lifestyle-related, like I want to have a nice house, nice watch, whatever it is, nice, all of that stuff. But the next 40 reasons are very likely to be about contribution. They're, about, they're likely to be about making a difference. They're likely to be about adding value because innately, once our needs are taken care of, we want to go to that next level of self-actualization. And so the first thing people have to do is they've got to start to create really positive associations with money and then they've got to see money as an energy. So if they don't value it, so let's just say wealth was uh, your second value, second most important value. And for me, wealth was my sixth most important value. The fact is that because wealth is your second most important value, you're always going to acquire more money than me because you value it. And you don't necessarily value it because it allows you to show off. You value it because you've attached some meaning to it. And that meaning is not superficial. That meaning may go beyond you, and it, it must go beyond you. So for me, for example, you know, I want to make millions. I only probably need about 3 or $4 million to make sure that I can have the lifestyle that I want for the, rest, for the rest of my life. But anything beyond that, I can use to grow businesses. I can use to grow people. I can use to make uh, donations and contributions to charitable causes or travel around the world or, or craft new initiatives. For, for that, you need funding and resources. The second thing is money is a magnifier. Money doesn't make you good or bad. It just If you're a good person and you acquire money, you become a better person. Why? Because now you have this powerful resource that can be used to create things. So if you're a good person, money will allow you to do great things. If you're a bad person, money will allow you to do evil things. But it's not the money that's making you that way. It's all, all it's doing is it's magnifying what's already there. For example, if somebody grabs a kitchen knife and stabs somebody, you're not going to blame the kitchen knife, are you? 
you're not going to say, well, we should not have any kitchen knives. Or you're not, or somebody, or somebody crashes their car into a person and kills the person. You're not going to say, well, let's take all the cars off the road because cars are bad, <laughs> right? But that's True. what we do with money. We always blame the money. We make money the enemy, not the person who is using money for exploitation or greed. So, mm. so the issue is again, we have to understand that money is just a magnifier. It will bring out, it will enhance your innermost attributes that you've been hiding from the world. If you're a good person, and I know what's in my heart, I know that it's, I, hey, I'm better off having money than a lot of those greedy people who are going to exploit the world because I know I'm going to use the money for some great things because I want to leave a positive footprint on the planet. So I'd rather have the money than go deny it and go, hey, you know, let all of these greedy people have the money. Well, no, why should they have it? I want, I want some so I can do some great things with it. And then the third thing is it's an enabler. If you have, you know, dreams, like there are things that you're frustrated about, there's problems that you want to solve in the world. There's things that you go, you know what, I would love to change that. But you haven't got time because you're so busy paying bills. You're so busy stuck in the rat race or you haven't got resources to be able to do it. Well, once you come into money, it enables you to do those things. So for me, I got rid of all my negative associations with money because all of them serve to become psychological barriers, which then promote procrastination and create doubt and lead to what I call conflicted thinking. And because of conflicted thinking, we don't take the decisive action that we need to take in order to accumulate wealth. And so that's why you've got to get rid of all negative associations with money if you want it. Right. So it's all about psychological barriers and removing those. And you made a really good analogy about the the car. You know, we don't take all cars off the road because one person, you know, T-bones someone at a at an intersection and kills the other person. Uh, you know, my father always told me, at least when I was just starting to drive years ago, was like, like, dude, this is you have to recognize that this is a weapon. Like, like you you now have you are now on the road with a weapon and you are driving a weapon. You possess a weapon. And in a sense, you're saying money money can sort of be the same way. It can be a, a weapon for bad. Um, and then, the, you know, the same weapons that, uh, you know, the same guns, I'll take it even a step further, the same guns that, uh, you know, kill people in school shootings are used to protect our country over in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? Well, exactly right. So there is a dual purpose that money money serves, and it's up to the individual. But it's interesting how when we are predisposed to seeing money as bad, then what we do is we myopically focus on situations and incidents where money has been used for greed, exploitation, and suffering. And we conveniently choose to ignore all the reasons why money can be used for uh, purposes of contribution and doing something good. So we do it ourselves. We become inattentively blind to support our own belief that money is bad. And it's, mm. it's, kind, of, it's kind of like an unconscious bias. And the issue is right. that... The issue the is negativity that, bias, maybe. Correct. And the issue is that most people need money. It's not like... We're not talking about... Like if 60% of Americans you know, don't even have $1,000 in savings and 75% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, right? That's crazy. Then, and then you're kind of going... Why are they denying money? Like, don't they understand that they're like they're so far away from actually becoming rich? And I had this incident happen to me on a flight as well. From I was flying from Brisbane to Melbourne in Australia, and there was uh, I was sitting. Um, uh, you know, there was a gentleman. There was a couple, and uh, I was reading a book, 
And the gentleman decided, he said, look, can I sit on the aisle seat and can you sit in the middle? So I said, yeah, no problem. So it was a short flight. And, I, and so the wife started talking to me. She said, oh, what's that book? And she goes, I've been wanting, meaning to write a book. I would love to write a book. And because we had this conversation and I told her I was an author. And then I said, yeah, why don't you? And she said, because we can't afford it. And I said, right, okay. She said, sometimes we can't even afford to feed our kids. I said, oh, that's terrible. And then, um, you know, we, and then she said, what do you do? I said, I have a, a business where I do strategic wealth planning for couples. And uh, we show people how they can have at least $1 million to $10 million without doing anything fancy. And the moment I said that, the husband jumps in and he goes, we don't want a $1 million. Hmm. And I thought to myself, you're kidding me. Your wife's just told me she can't afford to publish a book. She's telling me that you, can't, you guys can't feed your kids. And here you are telling me you don't want a million dollars. Like you are obviously really brainwashed, I thought to myself, into thinking that money is such a bad thing. And no wonder you haven't got any. Right? No and wonder. So, and so it, and, and it comes up all the time. I had uh, another incident where a friend of mine, she, she's a... a she she's an expert in um, real estate investing and her part of her job is to recommend real estate to her clients. And one day she rang, rings me out of the blue and she says, Ron, I need to talk to you about something. I say, yeah, what's up? She said, I know you're into this money mindset thing and everything. And, you know, I just wanted to let, you know, funny, strange thing happened last year. I got to about $250,000 in income and my pipeline just dried up. I got no business after that. And then this year, the moment I got to about 250000 again, I got sued and I had to pay some money back. She said, well, there's like this invisible barrier. I can't seem to get past $250,000. And so, you know, I said to her, I said, look, it's possible that at, you have a ceiling, you have a psychological ceiling around the 250000 She said, oh, no, Ron, I don't think that's the case because I grew up with a very wealthy dad. My dad was extremely successful. So we didn't have any negative beliefs about money. And then I could tell that she didn't want to hear anymore. So that was the end of the conversation. She hung up. And two weeks later, I, I saw a, a post on Facebook. And the, and the post said, uh, a retired Australian pensioner makes $20,000 a year. A retired Australian prime minister makes $250,000 a year. If you think that this is unfair, share it. And so she shared the post. So when I saw her mm -hmm. share the post, I picked up the phone and I rang her. I said, hey. What's that about? She goes, what? I said, you shared that post. She goes, which post? I said, that post that talked about the fact that a retired Australian pensioner makes $20,000 a year, a retired Australian prime minister makes $250,000 a year. Share this post if you think it's unfair. She goes, yeah, I think it's unfair. I said, right. I said, can I ask you a question? She said, yeah. I said, if, if, what if the post said a, a retired Australian prime, a pensioner makes $20,000 a year, and a retired Australian prime minister makes $60,000 a year, would that be okay with you? She said, yeah, I think it would be. That sounds a bit more fair. I said, right. I said, is it possible perhaps that you think that $250,000 is a lot of money? You attach a lot of significance to that number. And so there was like a long pause. She said, where are you going with this? I said, think about this. You think you shared that because you think that the amount of money a, a, a retired Australian prime minister makes is excessive, meaning you attach a lot of significance to the number $250,000. You said to me a few weeks ago, when you get to over $250,000, 
you seem to can't you see you can't seem to go past that invisible barrier. Now here's the thing. I, then I, I used an example. I said, think about a time when you actually walked into a bar or a nightclub, and maybe you saw somebody that you found to be quite attractive, but subconsciously you knew that they were out of your league. Can you think of such a time in the past? And she said, yeah. And I said, can you think of a time when you actually decided to approach that person despite your inner voice saying that this person's outside of my league? She said, I, I can. And I said, what happened? She said, I screwed up. I said, yeah, why do you think that is? That happens because at the moment we make a decision or we step outside what is our comfort zone or our possibility zone, we go into massive self-sabotage because it's not normal to us. And have you recognized that when you're talking to people that you're not attracted to and you have absolutely, you, have not, you don't want anything from them, that you can, you can just be in your element? How does that happen? And so the point that I was trying to make to her was I was trying to show her this connection that any time we attach too much significance to a number or to a person, we go into self-sabotage. Mm. And this is what happens every day. People think 200000 is too much money, 300000 is too much money, millions too much money. And so what happens is it conveniently that number sits outside of their possibility zone. And even if they take action to try and acquire that type of wealth, they're going to self-sabotage because it's not in their possibility zone. Why? Because they were attached, mistakenly attached to a significance to that number, not realizing that a few million dollars doesn't make you rich. It makes you comfortable poor. If your network <laughs> is up to $3 million, you are considered, one to $3 million is considered comfortable poor. <laughs> so you see how these concepts are completely invisible and intangible, but have so much potential to hold us back from taking the type of action we need to take to get the results that we want. It's so powerful. Yeah, you mentioned you know, another great analogy. And it seems so, to put a bow on, on this topic, then money is really what we make of it. It's the, the story we tell ourselves about money sort of becomes true. It does. And then, and then it unconsciously restricts us from so many things in life. And then we keep blaming the economy and we keep blaming our bosses and we keep blaming uh, in the industry and we keep blaming everything outside of us never realizing that hey have you like my wife used to be an executive recruiter many years ago and she used to always say i get 20 times more application for jobs at the average income level than i do for the top income level why because everybody wants to play that game why because it's familiar right everyone mm -hmm. says, well you know what that's what's normal but who told you that well that's what society's conditioned us to believe that this is normal if you make 50 80,000 dollars a year that's normal then if you make 300,000 dollars you're making a lot of money no you're not what rubbish and especially today in the social economy when the barriers of business have been removed you have a global business market you can you don't need equipment you don't need plant you don't need your plants you don't need machinery you don't need staff you can be one person maybe with one support person and still be, build a seven figure business have, you think people have woken up to that? No, because it's so not familiar to them. Mm. So that's why people don't take those those steps. Totally. Ron, I want to get into the the wealth habits of financially successful people. How do high earners manage their money? Well, I think there's a number of things. I mean, first of all, there's no. Um, it's not necessary that you have to be a high earner to become wealthy. So in fact, it's now been proven that there is no positive correlation between income and wealth. So wealth simply oh. means, 
Yeah, there isn't. So a lot of people think, well, if I make more money, I'll have more money. That's not the case. Um, in fact, what they've found is that majority of people who have acquired a decent net worth, and net worth is the only true measure of financial wealth, uh, actually were on average to slightly above average incomes. They were not high income earners. So that you don't. it's not a necessity because typically what happens is a person who is who doesn't understand how wealth is created and doesn't understand that net worth is the true measure and doesn't have the right disciplines, what's going to happen is as they make more money, they're going to spend more money. It's just how it works. Like, you know, I'll see people in their 40s and 50s and I'll say to them, um, do you save money? And they go, no. And I go, tell me something. Um, how long have you been in the workforce? And they go, well, 20 years or whatever it is. And I say, how many times has your income gone up in that time? I go, oh, five, six, seven, eight times, whatever it is. So I said, well, you were not saving money then. You're not saving money now. What does that tell you? It doesn't matter what your income is. If you don't have the right habits, you're not going to save any money. So one of the things I found was that income had nothing to do with wealth. Uh, it it kind of did, but not as much as people th- think. You've got to have some income, of course, but it's not how much money you make. It's what you do with it. And you'll see some people, like one of my clients is a, she is a manager at McDonald's and she is in her mid-30s and she's got uh, seven uh, real estate properties she's got and uh, she has never made uh, more than 60000 per annum. So, you know, the thing is, the reason she's been able to acquire that is because of the way she lives. Her lifestyle is, is she, she has minimum expenditure on lifestyle and a high expenditure on investing, right? And she's very good at delaying gratification. And she actually gets a lot of pleasure by committing to long-term strategies. So she is wealthier than a lot of my clients who make in excess of 300000 per annum because of her net worth, because of her ability to stick to long-term strategies. So one of the first things that we found with wealthy people, and this has been researched, there's actually research that was done by a Harvard professor. It's a 30-year study that found that the number one determinant of economic mobility was long-term orientation. Most people are not long-term thinkers. They're short-term thinkers. If you look at the extent of people's financial decisions, it extends to what am I going to have for lunch today? When am I going my next holiday? How much is it going to cost me to buy my washing machine? Most people are not thinking about where am I going to be in 15 years from now? How long is it going to take me to become debt-free? Uh, how long is it going to take me to acquire assets? People don't think like that because our brain is only, uh, for most people, our brain, it, it, the brain's job is to make us survive. It's not to make us thrive. So it's completely unnatural for us to have long-term orientation. But those who are able to overcome uh, the short-term instincts become very successful investors because they have long-term orientation. So they, in, in the case of my client who works at McDonald's, uh, the reason why she's so successful is because she's always thinking long-term. One of her goals was that at f- after 50, she doesn't want to work. She wants to travel the world. So her, she, her long-term orientation is very, very strong, whereas most people don't think long-term. So that's one of the key attributes. It's not income. It's long-term orientation. And majority of what makes you a successful investor it has to, comes down to not intellect, but emotional disciplines. Can you defer gratification? Are you patient? Are you committed to, to long-term? Can you, when the markets are down, can you control your fears? When the markets are up, can you control your greed? And that's majority of your financial success will come down to emotional disciplines.
Dude, my father, all he talks about, like if he were to write a book, it would be called Delayed Gratification. And that's really how he's built what he has, a great life he has now. Your dad's absolutely right. It's, uh, it's the hardest thing to teach today. Um, we are so addicted to distraction and stimulus that we can't even think and plan long term anymore. And so for me, that's where it starts. That's an absolute prerequisite. Unless you become wealthy by luck. Is it possible to become wealthy by luck? Of course it is. You know, just like it's possible to win at the casino. But I won't be planning my life on it, right? So some people become wealthy really, really fast. And they may, like, come up with a product or an app in business. Or they may uh, speculate on a particular investment that grows by, like, 10,000%. Is that possible? Of course it's possible. Is it probable? No. And you don't, you don't plan your future based on possibilities. You plan your future on probabilities, right? For me, I, none of my investments, when I look at my, uh, my future plan for my, my investments, none of my investments need to achieve more than 6% for me to become a multi-multimillionaire. That's the robust plan, not a plan that relies for me to get double-digit returns in order for me to become wealthy. If I can just achieve a very modest return, and still become wealthy. Now, that's what I want. Not where, hey, you know, I've got my fingers crossed every day and I'm hoping and I'm hoping and I'm hoping. Either I get, either I make a killing or I get killed. I don't want that type of plan because I've seen a lot of people who have had that kind of plan and majority of them get killed. There's a minority mm-hmm. that will make a killing. But you know what? For me, <laughs> it's my life. It's 30 years of my life in retirement potentially and I'm not play- prepared to place my bets on a minor possibility, I'd rather place my bets on a major probability. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier the uh, do you do you have the the mental stability, if you will? Can you weather the storm when the markets are down, and you know, can you can you stay in when the markets are up? Or, or and I use uh, Robinhood, the Robinhood app, to invest. I don't know what you think about that app, but. Um, I use that app, and actually, when the markets were down, the uh, you know, like the the last quarter of the year, pretty much of of 2018, and when it, I mean it was it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. It was worse than the worst I've th- that I've seen in my days of investing. I mean, I'm only 21, so I haven't seen too much. Um, uh, pretty much, you know, I know what my friend did. He deleted. My friend Steve Jordan, he deleted the app off of his phone so he wouldn't look at it and pull out. Um, you know, I just didn't. I, I used to look at it every day, which was so unhealthy. I don't think people should do that. It's like cocaine every time you look at that. I feel like it was sort of like a Facebook notification, and I would just get out of the habit of looking at it. You know, I started looking at it once per week, and then I would look at it, you know, once per month, and I just. Totally forgot about it to the point like, you know, it wasn't never really a thought. And because I knew I that's what I needed to do to weather the storm. And, and, you know, I finally looked at it when my friend was like, dude, did you see Facebook shot up today? And I was like, I was like, no, but I, you know, I here I am thinking like, oh, I got a bunch of Facebook. Let me go look. <laughs> and so that, so I really don't, I, in a way, the, the bad, the bad uh, financial markets have sort of made me, a much healthier investor. Like I don't look at that number as much anymore. What is, what would you say is the best uh, investing strategy, Ron? Well, first of all, I endorse your approach. Personally, I endorse the approach of not 
uh, watching the markets every day because investing is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you don't, you know, like the training that you do for a marathon is very different to the training that you do for a sprint. And if you're a marathon runner, it's all about endurance and withstanding the conditions for a long period of time, right? Whereas this, the problem happens when sprinters try and run a marathon, okay? They're not trained. And you don't need mm, a, a don't work. Brain. <laughs> it doesn't work. And you, you, don't, you don't need a good brain to become a successful investor. You need a good stomach to become a good investor. Why? Because you need to be able to weather the ups and downs. I mean, the fact is that if you look at the, um, I know you guys have the S&P, but we have the ASX in Australia. And you, the S- S&P is also very similar. If in 1950, an investor left $100 in a diversified portfolio of equities or stocks, as you call it, that $100, and they never looked at the market in 1950. Let's just say somebody like my grandfather had the vision to go, hey, here's 100 bucks. I'm just going to put it in the markets in a diversified portfolio. I'm never going to think about it. Today, that money is worth $211,000. That's $100. If he had put 1000 it'd be worth $2.1 million. If he had put 100000 it'd be worth $21 million. And if he had put a $1 million, it'd be worth $2.1 billion today. Without doing mm. it, just leave it there, right? Now, yeah, it's it's so funny how many people are in it for the for the short game. They're so oblivious to the long game. Like they get a you know five percent increase and they're like they got they got pull it out or you know it goes down like and they got to pull it out. They, like any movement and they just pull it out. That's it's so funny. Like just totally oblivious to the long game, man. Like like leave it in there. Exactly. That's why I say you need a good stomach. You don't need a good brain. Everyone like emphasizes intellect in this game. And I tell people it's, it's actually less about intellect because, in fact, what you'll find is that the most overconfident speculators in the world are young men between the ages of 20 and 45 that are tertiary qualified. They're the worst, right? Who are some of the best investors I have come across? Women over the age of 55. Why? They don't look at, they don't want to know what's happening in the market. They just, once you set up a good quality portfolio for them, and I do put that caveat in, you still have to buy good quality investments. You can't buy. Don't expect that you're going to buy crap and it's going to do well. It won't. Mm-hmm. But if you've bought well, the thing with a lot of uh, women sometimes who are closer to retirement, single women who are close to retirement, and they're not, they're not overconfident like a lot of young men are, what they do is, and they do this really well, it's they will just put their investment and forget about it. And so they're some of the best, most savvy investors in a way. And they know that it's the emotional control that is more important. So the best investment strategy one of the things you've got to understand is, some, number one, I mean, it, it, see, you've got to even go back a step. And first of all, you've got to value wealth. That's where it starts. If you don't value wealth, nothing's going to happen for you. So you've got to attach some meaning to wealth. That's the first thing. Two, you've got to make a decision that you're going to have wealth. Until you make a decision, nothing happens. It's not like things are just going to magically fall into place. Nobody becomes wealthy by accident. And if they do, they don't get to keep it by accident. Nobody. I mean, statistics are telling us now, if only 5% of people in the world get to a point where they can create enough wealth for intergenerational planning, then it, it's already telling you 95% of people don't get this game. You can't, you, you, see, everyone's playing this game. If you're making an income, you're paying taxes, you're putting money in your retirement fund, you are in the game. Issue, the problem is this, most people don't have any idea of how the rules work. How bad is that? Would you, what are the chances that you can win a game that you don't understand the rules of? Imagine baseball, uh, imagine tennis, whatever it is. You're going to, no matter how good you are at what you do, if you don't understand the rules, you're still going to fail. 
So you've got to learn the rules. And these are the rules. You've got to first value wealth. Two, you've got to decide to become wealthy. Three, you've got to remove all negative associations with it. Fourth, you've got to understand that there are only two ways to become wealthy. You can literally take everything that you know and you can put it into one of two categories. Money working for you, or the second option is people and systems working for you. That's it. There's no other way. If you don't have money working for you, and you don't have a plan to have people and systems working for you, you are guaranteed to fail financially. Guaranteed, right? I mean, this, it, it, it takes a lot of courage for me to go out on the limb and say that, but I'm convinced. If you don't have mm-hmm. either of those two strategies working for you, you are guaranteed to either fall back on the government or on your family to sustain yourself. If you don't mind that, fine. But if you do have a problem with that, you might want to get your, 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 your butt into gear and, and decide what are you going to do. Are you going to have money working for you or are you going to have people and systems working for you? I.e., are you, you either invest or you create a business. Or you have a combination of both, which is what the wealthiest people in the world do. And it comes to if you decide, well, you know what, I want to have money working for me, then it's a question of you just buy, you know, you got buy, you have to buy some good quality real estate, and there's a few principles you follow, and you buy some good quality businesses or stocks, and then you hold on to them, and you don't play with your money, you don't take stupid risks. All the things that can go wrong, you mitigate them. For example, you know, if I speak speaking to my clients, I ask them all, all the things that can go wrong with my client's financial situation. They can die prematurely. We can cover that risk. They can become injured or ill. We can cover that risk. Interest rates can go up. We can cover that risk. They may have temporary disruption to their employment. We can cover that risk, right? Markets might go down. We can cover that risk. They may, uh, they may lose money if they speculate. We can avoid that risk. So what we do is we look at every conceivable financial risk that a person can face, and we either minimize it, manage it, or mitigate it so that you are maximizing the probabilities of a client's achieving their objectives. Whereas how do most people play this game? They hope and they guess, and then they speculate, and then they get some tips from their friends or on the internet, and then they hope that maybe something's going to fall into place. Imagine playing going to the Olympics or playing a professional tennis match or professional baseball. Imagine going into that game with that type of preparation. You're going to get your butt kicked. And that's exactly what happens. It's so like predictable. Like for a lot of people are like, completely confused about why it's happening to them. And it's like, hang on, you didn't, did you understand the rules? Did you practice? Did you rehearse? Did you do any training around this game? No, you just walked into the ring. Of course, you're going to get knocked out. What were you expecting? Right, right. You have to know your stuff first. Ram, what would you say to the overconfident investors that think they can time the market perfectly because there's so many people my age that think they can do that seamlessly and it's just not true like i don't think you can time the market am i wrong well i would say to those people um why don't we have a 20-year bet on network calculations, <laughs> right I mean, if you're that confident, then and don't worry about well, how much money you make in a year or two years. It's a marathon. It's I don't care if you're ahead of me tomorrow or next year. I want to know can you get to the finish line? Because that's what it's about. Running a marathon is about getting to the finish line, right? It's not about oh well, you're ahead of me now, or you're ahead of me a hundred meters or five hundred meters. No, but that's not the point. Are you going to get to the finish line? And if people like when it comes to um, you know, you have to have a philosophy. So I'm not saying that. 
there are some merits in trading, like Warren Buffet can trade. But then Warren Buffet is an exceptionally talented person. And I do not put myself in that league at all, because if I was, then I'd be a billionaire, right? So I, I, I realize my limitations, and I have a philosophy. And my philosophy is, you don't play with your money. That if I just buy good quality investments and I hang on to them, and if I need to, if I'm looking for mental stimulation, let me do that in business. Let me not do that with my investing. So I have a very passive approach with my investments and a very active approach with my businesses, not the other way around. Most people do it the other way around. They're passive with their business and they're active with their investing. And I think that's a huge mistake. And I have seen a lot of traders, you know, they, they will brag about the fact that they're making money now. Maybe they made money in two years, three years, four years. Well, what about a 20-year game? Let's talk about whether you get to the finish line. So I personally am not a speculator. I do not believe in trading. I do not uh, advocate any type of investment philosophy, which relies on people's ability to accurately predict the future and what's going to happen in the markets. Uh, but I do believe in the efficiency of assets. So I would buy, I know that good quality real estate and good quality businesses are going to be here as long as you minimize all of your risk. And then it's just, a, it's just a hanging on to it, hanging on to it. And uh, it's about patience and discipline. And when the markets are down, I try and add money. When the markets are up, I don't invest, whereas people do the, the complete opposite. In fact, it's actually been said that the investment markets are the only markets in the world where people sell when the prices are slashed. Every other commodity, we buy more when the prices are slashed. But with the investment markets, everybody sells when prices are slashed. And Albert Einstein said, I can understand and I can explain the intricacies of the universe, but I cannot explain the stupidity of the human mind. And you actually see the stupidity of the human mind. You see it, you will never see it anywhere else more than you'll see it in the financial markets. You really see what happens to people when emotions take over, it's literally their brains stop working. And that's why I talk about having a good stomach because you've got to be able to withstand all the volatility, the ups and downs, the bad news, all the tips, all the speculative opportunities. You've got to be able to just block yourself from all of that and become myopically focused on your own approach and stick to that with discipline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally. Ron, what should somebody do with that has an extra hundred thousand dollars, say, lying around? What would they? What should they do with that money, right now? Look, it's hard to say because it will all come down to their objectives. So, I, one of the things I will, we would say to people is, look, if your time frame is more less than five years, then you should not invest that money um, because five five years, the markets are not reliable over a five year period. Whether it's real estate or it's businesses or shares or stocks, it's actually the markets are not very reliable in a five-year period. Markets show their efficiency over a longer period. So if it's under five years, um, I would just either just have it sitting in cash, or if you want to start a business, maybe look at some business opportunities. Now, there's no doubt about the fact that if you can create a good business, a great business model where there's a need in the market, that is the fastest way to create wealth. But I call business the super highway to wealth. So if you have a great business, and you know how to run the business, uh, that is the fastest way for you to become wealthy. The Investing is what I call the slow road to wealth. If you do it well, it's the slow road. It's not the superhighway. But where do you think people crash more? Obviously on the superhighway because they're going faster. Uh, so if you can make it on the superhighway, that's the fastest way to create wealth. If, but I will say to people, have, it, have your money in both. So the money that you, can, you, that you, you are prepared to lose 
invested in business, right? So that, but if all, if don't put all of your money in business, I always tell people, don't put all of your money in business because for every person that makes a lot of money in business by taking that kind of risk, about a hundred people lose everything. They lose their whole livelihood. So you have to be careful. Unless you're an exceptionally brilliant person, you have the you have the most amazing mindset that you've built. You're tenacious. You have vision. Don't put all of your money in business. Put some that you can afford to lose. Put the rest on in passive investments, right? And then work your butt off to make the business work. Um, but if you have hundred thousand dollars, it will all come down to your tax position, you know, because. When we someone says, where should I invest? I go, well, that depends on how old you are, how much, what's your time frame, what is your net worth target, what your tax position is, what other investments you have. It's a really complex question to answer. Um, and I would be saying to people, don't just act on somebody's tip. If somebody says, put your money here, well, they don't actually know your situation. And so they haven't considered the impact of that on you. And, and until somebody has fully examined your entire financial situation, uh, I would not be acting on any advice. But... Um, so you can't even say, well, go and invest in real estate because it would depend. Have you already got real estate assets? Are you over-concentrated in real estate? Um, so there's all of these considerations, which is why it's very hard to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a point that I that you did make that I want to highlight in terms of not putting all your eggs in one basket. And, you know, I think diversity is super important. Like, for example, not investing in... 80% of your portfolio of your assets into, let's say, I don't know, Nike. I mean, yeah, Nike's a good company, but to, to put all your eggs in one basket is kind of tricky and kind of risky. Now, would you say, this is, a, this is more of a personal question, I have about 15% of one of my portfolios in Square, and I've had that for over well over a year and a half. So it has done me incredibly well. Like I got in at an average price of, I believe, $37. And if you've seen Square, it kind of skyrocketed. At one point, it was up at like 104. Um, It's not quite up there anymore. But would you say that 15% asset allocation or, or, you know, of my portfolio being Square, is that too much what would what are the ideal uh what's the ideal diversity in an investment portfolio run well per company um i mean from our perspective that's too much per company so what we do is because diversification is basically it's an art and a science you don't want to spread yourself too thin because then you don't own anything at the same time, diversity doesn't mean that you just go and have... So there's a difference between diversified investments versus a collection of investments. For example, I could just have, you know, I could have all my money in banking stocks. I have five companies. Am I diversified? Not really. Because if something happens at the macroeconomic level and the banking sector is hit, all my stocks are going to come down. So that's not diversity, right? So diversity, in order to have optimum diversity, you've got to spread your money on a number of levels. At the first, you've got to spread it at the geographical level. Then you've got to spread it at the industry level. Then at the company level. And then at the fund manager level. That's proper diversity. Um, yes, it's possible that you can have a 15% allocation in a particular company and do extremely well. It's possible. Personally, I don't because it doesn't align with my philosophy and my client's philosophy. And I look, here is what I say to people in the world of money. If you ask the wrong questions, you'll get the wrong answers. 
the biggest challenge in the world of finance is to ask the right questions. So the question that you've asked me is not a bad question, but there's a better question. And the better question could be, what do I need to do now in order for me to become financially independent so I don't have to work for money by the time I'm 45 or 50 or 40, whatever it is? Oh, yeah. Let's That's do that question. question. That's a better question. And for that, there's a number of things you need to do. Number one, you need to identify how much money are you going to need if you were stopping work tomorrow for you to not get out of bed and be very comfortable. So how much money would you need to meet all of your basic expenses, all of your lifestyle expenses, and all of that stuff? So let's just say that was 100000 per annum. And you say, well, Ron, if I had 100000 coming in each year and I didn't have to get out of bed, that would be a great life. I would still work. I would still do what I'm doing. But it would be nice to not worry about at least $100,000 a year is taken care of. Okay, that's fine. When would you like that to happen? Or would that be great if I, by the time I'm 40, that starts to happen? Okay, so we've got 19 years. Now, what we need to do is work out the future value of that 100000 in 19 years because 100000 what it's going to buy today, is not, it's not going to buy what it's going to buy in 19 years because of inflation. So effectively, there is an erosion in your purchasing power. The 100000 today is probably only going to buy $50,000 worth in 19 years. So we've got to work out the future value of that 100000 Make sense? Mm-hmm. Am I getting too technical here? You got it. You got it. <laughs> think about it. So think about it, right? If you had, so when the day that you were born, for example, $100 may have bought a certain amount of groceries, right? Yeah, $100 would have bought. Um, but, but today, you know, like a dollar would have maybe bought, you know, a certain amount of petrol. Like you maybe, maybe when you were the day you were born, petrol, or, or, I don't know when you guys have diesel or fuel or gas, whatever it is, it might have been 15 cents per liter as an example. But today, it's not 15 cents a liter. It's more expensive. Everything becomes more expensive over time, which means that if you, if 100,000 was enough for you to live comfortably today, it's not going to be enough in 20 years' time. You're going to need a multiple of 100,000 for you to be comfortable. Make sense? Right. Yeah? Yes. So that's the first thing. You've got to have a target. So we, the first thing I would do with somebody like you is I would go, okay, well, what's the equivalent of 100,000 in 20 years' time? Let's just say it's 140,000. And then what kind of net worth do you need to have so that every year, if your total asset base was producing a 5% return, you would get 140000 coming into your bank account without getting out of bed? And, oh, then man. Re- and then we reverse engineer and go, okay, now what you need to do, you've got 19 years to get to that point. This is what you need to do. This is the amount of money you need to save. This is the amount of money you need to invest. This is where you invest. And this is how you, you, you plan for your tax to get to this outcome. And you think about it, it's a big goal. People, you don't just randomly achieve a multi-million dollar net worth unless you're one of the few 2 or 3% of people who speculate and become lucky. But what the problem with that is everyone, that's what everyone's plan is, that hopefully something will just work out and click and I'll become wealthy. Everyone's got the same plan, and that plan doesn't work 9 out of 10 times. And that's why we advocate that people get um, serious and conservative and disciplined with their planning and not leave it to chance. But you know what? History has shown us that people won't do it. It's, you know, like I, have, I'm, I'm, I had to start from scratch. My parents had to start from scratch. Their parents had to start from scratch. Not one generation was able to plan it in such a way that the future generations could start with a foundation. So we know that human race has complete inability to plan long-term. And even out of all the audience, and I'm going to say this, for all the people that are listening to this, majority of them are not going to do anything. It's already, history has already, I'm not saying this, History has already proven this. People will not take long-term action. Why? I don't know. But that is just the case. So 
Why? Because it's hard work. People don't want to do the hard work. They don't want to do things that are boring. They, don't want, to, they want to do the exciting, fun things and quick things. But unfortunately, in the game of money, that stuff doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Got it. Awesome, Ron. So I have learned a ton from this conversation, Ron. And thank you for that. And I, before I uh, ask my final question, where can people connect with you? online and learn more about finance and what you're up to so um i um you know i i mean my wealth advisory services are restricted to australia because we have to work with the australian laws um and tax rules and stuff like that but uh, i also provide wealth coaching for people that want to uh, they want to uh, do everything themselves but they want to have an understanding of the principles and fundamentals and strategy so they can go and do it themselves so we have wealth coaching services for people like that. Uh, we don't give any advice on where to invest, but we give them all the fundamentals and frameworks so they can make their own decisions. Um, the and, and I am creating a wealth program, which my, my, my goal is to create one of the most comprehensive wealth programs uh, in the world, which, uh, which is because there are certain universal principles and strategies that are applicable everywhere. Uh, so I'm in the process of creating that program that should be available at the end of this year. Uh, people can connect with me on LinkedIn or they can go into my website, ronmahotra.com, uh, and uh, just reach out if you have a particular thing. I can't give you specific advice on strategy and product. By law, I'm not allowed to do that unless you engage me. But even to engage me, you have to be in Australia. And I'm actually currently not taking any new clients at this stage um, because uh, I'm already at capacity. For wealth coaching, if you're somebody that wants to learn what it takes or you want to learn how to build a business, you want to learn how to build a business around your passion and your message, and take that global within three years, I can teach you that as well because I have done it for myself and I've been doing it for my clients. So ronmahotra.com or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Yeah, on LinkedIn, I mean, dude, you're, you've got quite the following there, quite the engaged following. I'm sure you approach 100,000 views on every single post, I, probably, I'm just guessing. But uh, people should at the very least connect with you there and follow you on LinkedIn. And... Now, Ron, I want to acknowledge you, and in this acknowledgement, there's a bit of a highlight that I want people to take note of. There's no surprise that you have been successful and accrued wealth yourself, and I acknowledge you for knowing your stuff. You know, you say 7%, you say 12%. You're not, you don't say, I think it's about like 10%. No, you know it. You, you're specific and you know it's 7%. And that means you're into it. That means you know your stuff. And I acknowledge you for that, Ron. And I thank you for that, for being so specific like that and providing that sort of surgical laser-like value. Thank you. Well, that's my pleasure. And I do, you know, I would just say to people, you know, we – the good people need to come into a lot of money. Don't be the one of those people. Like I always see that so many heart-centric people never have money because of the negative beliefs that they have about money. In fact, who should have money in the world? All the heart-centric people. They're going to make a difference. They're going to solve problems. They're going to help people. So even if you don't love money, find a, find a reason to have it that goes beyond you. But do create some positive associations with it. Become ambitious around it. You don't need to buy the houses and the watches and the cars. Don't do that if you don't want to do that. But still make it and then give it away. What's wrong with that? 
right? Um, so I would encourage everybody to have healthy beliefs around money. Don't make money the enemy. Money is not the enemy. It's a great enabler. You have more control, more options, and the ability to contribute when you have money. And don't judge money because of the actions of people who use money for the wrong things. And that's pretty much the conclusion of my my talk here. But thank you. I really appreciate you're a very gracious host and I wish you all the best with your podcast and thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. Now, Ron, my final question though is what does life beautifully designed look like to you? And I think it's a very fitting question since you are designing that financially, but what does it look like? For me, a beautiful life, a fulfilling life is having the ability to being able to live by your highest value. So find out what is your highest value. We all have a set of values and our value is determined by way, what we love to do, what is most important to us, where we spend most of our time and money. And to me, you will find that the most fulfilled people on the planet are people who have identified what their value is and they're making decisions in a, in a way that they're living in accordance with those values. If you want to have a life of fulfillment, that's where you want to be. And money will enable you to be able to do that. If you don't have money, you're not going to be able to live by your highest values. And that's, for me, one of the fundamental reasons why you must have money. So find out what your number one value is. My number one value is legacy. My second number one, second most important value is learning. And what I find is that money allows me to be able to create things which are going to outlive me. And it allows me to seek out the best consultants, advisors, and mentors in the world so that I can accelerate my development. But I can tell you now, if I didn't have the money, I would not be able to do those things. So that's why it's so important to get the money and then live by your highest value. Ron Malhotra, you're the man. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, listen, um, I can tell that you have a level of depth and maturity about you. I really appreciate that. At 21, I wish I knew a tenth of the stuff that you you know and the tenth of the confidence that you have. So I can only imagine where you're going to be by the time you're 41, which is my age. You're going to absolutely smash it. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of the Growth Mindset University podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick five-star rating in iTunes. All you have to do is grab your iPhone or iPad, open up the Apple Podcast app, hit the search tab, search the show Growth Mindset University, or just search my name, Jordan Paris, tap the show, scroll all the way to the bottom, and then just hit that fifth star. And that helps us tremendously in ways that you could never even imagine. It means the absolute world to me when people do this. I would be eternally grateful if you do that. We're pushing 100 ratings right now, and it's really making a difference for this show. And of course, if you've not already subscribed to the show, just make sure you do that wherever you're listening to so that you don't miss that next episode. I know you're not going to want to miss it. And you only heard this episode today because I thought it was valuable enough to post here. So if you want to share that value with your friends, your family, go ahead and do that. Share this episode with them. Take a screenshot. Send it to them. Take a screenshot. Put it on your Instagram story and tag me at J underscore Paris underscore so that I know you're listening and I can get back to you and put a face to the name. Now, if you're ready to really take your life to the next level, my book is on Amazon. It is also called Growth Mindset University. It's all about how to learn anything, how to take control of your life, and how to fulfill your vision of success. And you're not just supporting me and this channel by getting this book, but you're also getting 
this awesome book that's going to lay out the rules and principles to design your life full of joy and fulfillment. All right. I love you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn, and grow to give.